I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast, and I hope everyone is staying well. When the EU first introduced its sustainable finance strategy several years ago, I'd venture to say that few of us were prepared for the sea change that was about to happen. Indeed, I'd say that there's perhaps no more influential policy agenda in sustainable finance than the European Commission's legislative efforts. Not only was it the first to break ground, but frankly, the Commission remains the most ambitious in bringing transparency, disclosure, and order to the ESG space. It's also a testament to how regulators everywhere are now, largely speaking, fellow travelers on this path. Sure, some approaches may be more principles-based, others more prescriptive, but the impact is manifold. Case in point, the UK recently announced its sustainable disclosure requirements. A growing number of countries are rolling out mandatory corporate reporting requirements, including the US climate-related disclosures, and even the standards themselves are finally converging, most notably into the International Sustainability Standards Board. It's why I'm so excited to have Alain Deckers from the European Commission DG FISMA on the podcast. Having had the opportunity to work with him on a European Financial Reporting Advisory Group Steering Lab, I can say he's one of the most thoughtful, articulate people focused on sustainable finance regulation. We talk about greenwashing, enforcement, flavors of materiality, regulatory harmonization, and why it's critical to understand as a whole the EU's ambitions and legislative ability in architecting the sustainable finance strategy. I do want to point out that the views set out in this podcast are those of Alain, and not the official position of the European Commission, nor the views of individual commissioners or other officials of the European Commission. Alain Deckers is the newly appointed head of the asset management unit within the European Commission's Directorate General for Financial Stability, Financial Services, and Capital Markets Union, or DG FISMA. He was the vice chairman of the FRAG European Lab Steering Group. With over 20 years of experience at the European Commission, Alain has been responsible for policy reviews and policy development in areas including trading goods, environmental policy, public procurement, and financial services regulation. Welcome to the podcast, Alain Deckers. It's great to have you here today, and thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much, Jason. It's uh, great to be with you, and thank you for the invitation. Great. I'm looking forward to this. So, Alain, we have a lot to talk about, but I'd like to begin understanding your new role as head of DG FISMA's Asset Management Unit. That's a big position that comes at a really unique time with so much sustainable finance legislation being developed. Can you talk about what the scope and oversight of that role is and how has it evolved in the context of the EU's sustainable finance strategy? Certainly. Well, of course, traditionally, the job has been very much focused on investor protection and it still remains focused to a large extent on investor protection. And part of the job is administering the basic legislative and regulatory framework for the asset management industry in Europe, and that would involve USITS Directive and the Alternative Investment Fund Managers Directive, which are really the core of our legal framework for asset management. Uh, there are many other aspects, um, including aspects related to disclosures, the so-called PREPS regulation, which is also a pretty cross-cutting piece of uh, legislation. 
But as you as you suggested, clearly sustainability has acquired a great deal of importance in recent years. I always joke that when I joined this department uh, many years ago, if we mentioned climate change or sustainability, it was almost by mistake. Nowadays, sustainable finance and the impact that has not just on the asset management industry, but on the financial sector and financial industry more generally, is really a core pillar of our work. And I would say that I would spend uh, anywhere up to 40 or 50% of my time working on that aspect. So clearly it has become a very important element of my work and of my new role, as it was uh, to a large extent in my previous role, where I was dealing with in particular the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive for the last couple of years. That clearly is a, is a very big part of, of the job. And that just reflects, I think, the increasing importance of sustainability or ESG or however we want to call it for uh, the financial sector and, and, and the asset management industry in particular. Just before I go on, uh, Jason, I, I do want to very quickly introduce the standard disclaimer, of course, that uh, anything I say is uh, just my personal opinions and it doesn't represent the official position of the European Commission or of any individual commissioners or other commission officials. Got it. No, understand that disclaimer. I appreciate that. So, so let's dive into one of the points that you made around disclosure. I've seen data that indicates that the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, SFTR, let's call it, has been a material driver in the increase of sustainable assets held by EU domiciled funds. European sustainable assets, according to that data, have increased from roughly $1 trillion US from Q1 of 2021 to almost $3.5 trillion by the end of last year. And the number of sustainability funds essentially doubled from a little bit less than 3,500 to more than 6,200. So I guess my question to you to start off with is, do you see this growth as evidence of the success of SFDR's effort to steer capital flows? Or does it represent something else, potentially even greenwashing? I would like to think that it represents a real shift of investment from non-sustainable to sustainable assets. And to some extent, I'm sure it is. Unfortunately, I suspect that it's a bit of both of the phenomena that you mentioned. And um, one of my big concerns is that in a number of cases, funds are essentially being rebadged, not because the nature of the assets underlying those funds are necessarily more sustainable, but because it's just a commercial imperative to become more visible and more active in the sustainability space. To what extent uh, is that phenomenon happening? And uh, you refer to it as greenwashing, and that is indeed a concern that is that is widely shared, not just not just by me personally, but if you look at uh, the recent pronouncements uh, coming from uh, the supervisory community, it clearly is also a concern for them. So to what extent is that driving the changing uh, allocation or, or at least description of, of assets as being sustainable? That's debatable, but uh, my fear is indeed that it is certainly part of the story and it is something that we need to be very mindful of because my concern and again, I insist that I speak in a personal capacity, but my big concern is that the next mis-selling scandal is in the sustainability space. That If that were to happen, that could really seriously undermine the credibility and consumer confidence in, in this area, investor confidence in this area. So it is something that we must absolutely avoid. If it is potentially a greenwashing problem, 
Does bad behavior explain it, or is it potentially a good faith misinterpretation on a principles-based level one basis? Yeah, again, I think it's always dangerous to assume that there is a single answer or a single driver for these kind of behaviors. I would not claim necessarily that our legal framework is perfect and that it could not be clarified. Perhaps we can, at a later point, turn towards the further work that we are doing, in particular in relation to the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, uh, for which we intend to adopt very, very soon the detailed requirements and disclosure requirements through the regulatory technical standards under the SFDR, which will hopefully provide more clarity. But again, I I would not be so presumptuous as to claim that uh, our our legal framework is perfect. Clearly, it it probably can be clarified and improved in a number of ways. Having said that, I, I referred earlier to what I see as a commercial imperative in the industry to reposition itself in a number of cases to to show that the industry has sustainable products to offer to the market because the demand is there. And I suspect that at some stage in the not too distant future, it will be very difficult or increasingly difficult at least to sell any product that is not in one way or another considered to be sustainable. So there is that commercial imperative. And I would not be surprised if in some cases that leads to rather liberal interpretations of what can be labeled as sustainable, perhaps in in some cases, regardless of of what the legislation actually says. So, as I said, I think it's dangerous, I think, always to assume that there's a single answer, but I'm sure that both are part of the story. Yeah, I do want to stay on this point a little bit. It is quite interesting. I've seen your comments on social media, essentially admonishing people for claiming to be registered or badged, as you said, as Article 6, Article 8, or Article 9. As you said, quote, the SFDR isn't a product labeling scheme. Claiming or suggesting that is 100% misleading. So has the asset management industry fundamentally misinterpreted disclosure regulation as an ESG badge? I mean, frankly, I've heard you mentioned the commercial imperative. I've heard of instances for where fund distributors have essentially threatened divestment unless the fund is labeled Article 8 or Article 9, which puts asset managers in sort of a difficult position. Indeed. The concern I have about the way that SFDR is sometimes used by the industry is that, as you mentioned, that it is being presented as a de facto product labeling scheme. Now, I understand that the funds industry needs a tool that is easy to understand, that they can use to communicate with, with investors. And of course, there, there is this strong temptation to use SFDR and the Article 8, Article 9 classification uh, for that purpose. But when I say that it is not a product labeling scheme, what I mean is that there is no mechanism within the SFDR to ex ante verify that a product is actually Article 8 uh, pursues environmental or sustainability characteristics or Article 9 pursues sustainable investment. It is simply a framework that requires financial market participants and others to make certain disclosures if they claim that the products they are offering either pursue sustainability characteristics, Article 8, or pursue sustainable investment, Article 9. But that is all it is. It's a claim 
by the product manufacturer or product distributor. Now, of course, through the disclosure framework that SFDR establishes, and uh, hopefully that will become even more potent once we have the RTS on the statute book and that becomes applicable on the 1st of January of next year, there will, of course, be a mechanism for supervisors to verify whether the claims or the disclosures that are made by financial market participants and others actually correspond to the claims that they make about the nature of the products they market. But that is a, I was going to use the term second order effect, but it's perhaps not the right term, but it is an ex post, at least, uh, process. So that's why I insist always that SFDR is not a product labeling scheme. There are many labels and standards out there Many countries in Europe have developed such labels and standards, and that is perhaps something that, that we may need to look at at some stage in the future too. But that's why, uh, again, I, I always insist that SFDR is not a product labeling scheme because it wasn't intended to be, and it shouldn't be treated as, as such. Now, uh, is it deliberate misinterpretation, as you ask? I don't want to judge people on their intentions. All I see is the way that sometimes the communication about SFDR Article 8 and Article 9 is carried out, in my opinion, uh, raises some concerns. I've recently even seen that now I think on the, you can go into a Bloomberg terminal and, and actually search for funds uh, on the basis of Article 8 and Article 9 and things like that. Those are the kind of worrying developments that I see because, again, that is not the intended purpose of uh, SFDR. What is the solution to this labeling problem, given that there will always likely be some, I've got to think, temptation to apply this as a batch? In other words, do we need a separate piece of ESG labeling legislation from the European Commission? You know, is the European Commission's current work on minimum sustainability criteria, at least for Article 8 funds, essentially a response to this issue? It's a very good question. And I want to make clear, I understand the need on the part of the industry to have a tool that they can use, a practical tool that is easy to apply, that, is, that serves the communication needs of the industry towards, towards investors. So I have nothing against that. All I'm saying is that SFDR um, was designed for a particular purpose and, and that purpose shouldn't be abused. Now, as to whether we need to look at uh, this uh, a broader area uh, of product labeling or product standards or whatever we might, may call it, as you say, we have already announced in, in the latest iteration of our, of our sustainable finance uh, strategy that uh, this is something that we, we would look at, in particular in relation to Article Eight products, and again, I, I to a certain extent incur in the uh, error that I criticise others for making by even using that term. But uh, for the purposes of the discussion, perhaps we can leave it at that. Um, do we need to look more broadly? I think it's an interesting question to ask. Uh, again, uh, my personal inclination would be to reply in the affirmative that we do need to look more broadly at this question. But that is very much uh, again a, a personal opinion. We will see uh, these, are, these are debates that will have to happen inside the house and uh, we'll have to see where it leads us. How do you think about enforcement in the context of SFDR? Will the EU impose enforcement and penalties? I know that you're somewhat limited in what you can say coming from the European Commission because that's not necessarily the role of the Commission. But how do you sort of see this working out? My initial expectation over the last 12 to 18 months was that European regulators would let SFDR settle for several years before enforcing. 
And I'm wondering, how do you think the increasing claims and certainly concerns of greenwashing, and in fact, the SEC's investigation into DWS, to what degree does that accelerate European enforcement efforts? Yeah. I, I Generally, we don't like to think in Europe that our agenda is being driven by the US, although I'm certain that in some cases, developments in the US do, of course, indirectly impact on, on what happens in the EU, not just in this area. I'd like to underline one, one point which you've already mentioned or alluded to, uh, Jason, which is, of course, the European Commission doesn't have an enforcement role. So our job is we're more just a pure regulator. We, we draft legislation, which is then adopted by the Parliament and the Council. And uh, we also uh, enact uh, sort of uh, regulatory standards, including the, the RTS, for example, under the, under the SFDR. But we don't have a direct involvement in supervision or enforcement of these rules. That is a, a task for the national competent authorities in each uh, member state of the EU. And they, of course, they cooperate via ESMA. And ESMA also has a, an important role in promoting supervisory convergence, not just ESMA, also the, the other European supervisory authorities. Now, what we have in the SFDR, for example, is there's an article in the regulation that says that uh, national competent authorities must have the necessary powers to ensure that the requirements of the regulation are enforced. Our texts, uh, often at European level, unfortunately, perhaps uh, don't always go into a great amount of detail about enforcement matters. There are, there are reasons for that, political and legal, but they are what they are. But the primary responsibility lies with national competent authorities, and as I said, uh, with ESMA performing a an important role to ensure supervisory convergence across Europe. Now, one example of that is the uh, joint supervisory statement that the European supervisory authorities published in, in, in towards the end of February, if I remember correctly, uh, in particular related to the sustainable finance disclosure regulation. I think in reply to your point about whether we should let things bed down and, and then start enforcing, I've never been particularly keen on that approach because the risk I see with that is just to let bad habits develop. And my personal inclination has always been to say, well, no, you should pay very close attention to what happens precisely during that bedding down period of the legislation, the early stages of application of the legislation. Because if you don't, again, bad habits can develop, which are then much harder to correct at a later stage. So I wouldn't personally be in favor of that approach. And I think it's very good that the ESSAs have uh, published this uh, joint supervisory statement, that they're clearly showing that they are taking this matter seriously. And as I said earlier, I very much hope that with the publication of the detailed disclosure requirements through the uh, regulatory technical standards, which, again, uh, I really hope are imminent, uh, perhaps if we had done this recording 10 days later, uh, we could already be talking about them, that will provide a much stronger basis for uh, competent authorities to enforce the, uh, the requirements. Because we, we are at the moment in a, in a rather sort of a odd situation where the so-called level one that is to say, secondary legislation is already in force and in application, but we haven't yet enacted the detailed regulations providing for the, the, the specific disclosures that are required. As I said, hopefully we'll, we, will, we will correct that very, very soon and we will have a fully fledged legal framework in place and that can then apply from the 1st of January of 2023. How, I guess, along the same veins of enforcement, how do you see harmonization evolving for sustainable finance regulation? On an EU basis, there's a market market difference in how some national regulators are interpreting SFDR 
and even positioning it alongside their own labels, which appear to be gold-plated relative to so the ESMA European Commission application of SFTR. I note France, Belgium, and Germany are certainly going about these gold-plated approaches. How do you think that harmonization across Europe starts to fold in? Sure. My first observation would be that there is a lot of learning by doing. We're all up, whether it's regulators, supervisors, the industry, investors even, we're all up against a pretty steep learning curve. And I sometimes make a rather mean comment about politicians over the last 30 years. I started working in the European Commission a few years after the Rio summit. And what I've observed is that for a long time after the Rio summit, essentially decisions uh, in particular about climate change were just being kicked into the long grass and, and no effective action has, was taken with, with honorable exceptions. But So the, the result is that we're now faced with a situation in which we have to make very, very significant changes very, very quickly. And clearly that means that sometimes the result can be slightly messy. For example, we've received sometimes criticisms about the sequencing of the various measures we've, we've adopted. They may or may not have merits, but it's a legitimate point to, to make. So I want to underline that there, that there is a lot of learning by doing. And so when we talk about harmonization, we have to be a little bit cautious because, yes, we do need in Europe where we want to develop a capital markets union, we do need common standards and common approaches, but that can happen at different levels. It doesn't necessarily always involve a new legislation. It can do, but it doesn't necessarily need to do that. So I've mentioned the role of the European supervisory authorities to ensure supervisory convergence in Europe. That might be one important, and that is one important element. We have more generally in Europe developed the so-called Lanfalusi process where we use these fantastic terms, level one, level two, and even level three. So we have different levels at which we can act again that doesn't all that doesn't always require new legislation now that doesn't exclude that in some cases we may need to look at our legal framework and and, and fine-tune it and improve it because so i don't think anybody in in the eu uh, whether it's in the commission or uh, parliament or council would necessarily claim that we we get everything perfect the right way around but this is a process and it's a process that is made more complex by these strong sense of urgency that we're now facing and these very clear deadlines that we have, in particular in relation to climate change, the amount of time we have to effect the necessary changes is very limited. And therefore, the gradient of the curve that we have to move along is now steeper than it would have been had we taken action 10, 15, 20 years ago. And the more we delay action, the steeper the gradient of the curve becomes. So uh, that, is a, that is clearly a, a challenge. Now, internationally, I mean, we, we have conversations and very productive conversations with counterparts across the world, whether it's the SEC or others. We try to learn from each other, we try to align our approaches to the greatest extent possible. There are various fora that exist for that purpose also, not just among regulators, but also among supervisors, IOSCO, G20, and the Financial Stability Board, and so on. So there are plenty of fora in which these discussions are taking place. Inevitably, though, political imperatives in different parts of the world are slightly different. So the pace of progress is also somewhat different. We in Europe, it's fair to say, have chosen to go for a rather ambitious and comprehensive approach. We, in general, tend to look at the ESG space as a whole rather than looking, focusing only on climate, for example. 
we have also a, a pretty ambitious approach in terms of, for example, double materiality, which is not used everywhere else in the world. So I think those jurisdictional specificities are inevitable. It's very difficult to imagine that we will have a, a fully harmonized approach at global level uh, in the short term. But that is certainly something that we have to strive for, or at least the greatest possible degree of alignment. In my previous job, for example, I was in charge of the preparation of the CSRD proposal. And while, again, that reflects the specificities of Europe, you know, full scope ESG approach, double materiality and so on, we did take care in that proposal to point to the need for global convergence. And certainly uh, in more practical terms, uh, we very much from the Commission side also encouraged EFRAG to work very closely with international standard setters, including the IFRS Foundation. So we're fully conscious of that. We don't want to fragment markets. We don't want to subject our companies to multiple layers of regulation if, if that can be avoided. But I think we have to be realistic about the fact that the political context in Europe is different from, for example, the political context in the US. And that explains some of the differences that we're seeing in those two jurisdictions. And uh, that is a political reality and we have to live with it. Yeah, absolutely. Materiality is such an interesting <laughs> topic to to discuss. I guess I'm I'm wondering, given your work on EFRAG on CSRD, obviously we know each other from EFRAG. How do you see CSRD fitting in with, as you mentioned, IFRS, the new ISSB standard, the International Sustainability Standards Board standard, which is effectively anchored in financial materiality or enterprise value for the firm? which is very different from the EU's approach and understanding the socio-environmental impact that a company or an investment portfolio might have looking at, for instance, the principal adverse impacts. Yeah, I mean, I think there's sometimes a danger of, of these debates becoming a little bit more ideological than they need to be. I don't think there is inconsistency between these various approaches, but our approach in Europe, I would say, is just slightly broader. Having said that, when I think about double materiality, yes, it goes beyond the strict financial materiality dimension because it also looks at the, what we call the inside-out dimension of materiality, that is the impacts or externalities uh, that uh, economic activities and companies generate. But I always think that this, for me, is also an integral part of a consumer or an investor protection mandate because there is increasingly a tendency to make investment choices on the basis of impact. Impact investment is, is certainly something that, is, that has become more important over the years. And how can we ensure that investors and asset owners are, are really getting what products claim they are getting if there is no reliable information about the impacts that the underlying economic activities or companies have on, on, on the environment, on society more widely? So I don't see any contradiction between double materiality and, and even a, a, a pure uh, investor protection mandate, which is why sometimes I am a bit puzzled that agencies or authorities in other jurisdictions that clearly have that investor protection mandate don't seem to reflect this double materiality perspective. But um, turning to your point about the link between CSRD and, and the uh, 
International Sustainability Standards Board. I mean, yes, the International Sustainability Standards Board again has focused on a more financial materiality perspective or what they refer to as enterprise value creation in some contexts. Now, there can be interconnections or feedback processes between these financial materiality dimension and, and the impact dimension in the sense that, for example, if a company trashes the environment, it may be to legal liability and, and that can have financial consequences. This is, this is sometimes referred to as dynamic materiality. I had an exchange with Bob Eccles recently on, on LinkedIn about this. I, I do not believe that dynamic materiality fully captures what we mean by double materiality. I think double materiality is a broader concept because not all impacts necessarily translate into financial impacts. I haven't yet seen a transmission mechanism, if I can use a term from sort of monetary policy, that would explain exactly how all impacts turn into financial impacts on the environment and society translate into impacts on the financial situation of the, uh, of the company that has those impacts. Having said that, I think there are some welcome signs. I saw recently that the ISSB has concluded an agreement with the Global Reporting Initiative uh, to, to work together and try to align their standards, which suggests that there is an understanding that there is a need for a broader approach. And to the extent that that happens, I think that would more closely align with the approach we've used in Europe with uh, double materiality. So that's, that would be a positive step towards reflecting the approach that uh, we've, we've chosen in Europe uh, in the work that's being done at an international level. Now, how does all of that pan out in practice into the standards and so on? That is something that, first of all, I'm no longer responsible for, so I hesitate to talk about because my colleagues uh, may not appreciate if I give the impression that I'm backseat driving for the work they're doing. But again, this is a process. I think we'll, we'll have to see exactly how all this meshes together. What I can say is that from the very beginning, again, I want to insist on this, from the very beginning of the work we did on the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, we were very conscious that we needed to at least set in place the conditions to allow for um, convergence between the work we do in Europe at an international level. I think that is a two-way dialogue. It cannot be simply that the international level dictates to individual jurisdictions. Individual jurisdictions have to be involved in that work and have to see that it meets their own needs. Because I mentioned earlier, each jurisdiction has its own political constraints and uh, there is simply no way in which international standard setters can escape from those political constraints because those political constraints are driven by democratic processes and that is the way it should be. Yeah, it, it definitely will be interesting to watch and see if out of these two standards, some sort of baseline is is able to be sort of uh, achieved. Let me move on. What do you think the implications and even unintended consequences of creating disclosure frameworks like the SFDR and even taxonomies like the EU taxonomy are? Does this inevitably lead to picking winners and losers, is there a worry that this potentially creates pricing distortions in the market now that you have to kind of wear the hat of, of asset management and you're a bit more markets focused? Well, these standards, you mentioned the taxonomy in particular. Taxonomy is not about picking winners. It's about providing a dictionary so that we all understand what we mean when we say that something is sustainable or not. So that there's actually a common basis to work on, but it doesn't mandate investment in sustainable activities or much less in unsustainable activities. So in that sense, it's not about picking winners and losers. But you refer to price distortions. I won't use that term, but, but I'll, I'll turn to the, the notion of relative prices. To a certain extent, if our sustainable finance policy doesn't shift relative prices, then it's not biting. So, of course, even a disclosure requirement is intended 
to affect behavior by investors and others. And that ultimately translates into shifts in relative prices. So that's just the way the market works. That should not be a surprise. But I don't think the focus uh, of our policy, or certainly not the intention of the policy so far, has been about picking winners. I have personally not been shy to say that if some parts of the private sector don't see the light, then perhaps at some point policymakers may have to turn towards more intrusive uh, interventions. But that's not where we are at the moment. And uh, again, that's not policy of the, the European Commission. That's just a personal reflection, reflection on, my, on my part. How do you think about this concept that the platform on sustainable finance is, is introducing, this concept of traffic light taxonomies? It would seem to make more flexible or at least broaden out the, the current taxonomy in order to distinguish between environmentally neutral and harmful activities, uh, particularly for use around energy transition themes. Yes, there's, there's, there's been a lot of debate uh, about that ever since we started work on, on the taxonomy. Maybe I misremember, but I, I seem to remember uh, Mark Carney perhaps making a, a gag uh, in reference to a movie series talking about Fifty Shades of Green. We have heard that uh, some people think uh, the approach has been too binary, so that has led to some, for some calls for a more graduated approach and... Uh, you know, maybe that's something that, that needs to be looked at. But I think uh, given the overall circumstances and, and political context at the moment, I, I, I'm not going to venture into much more detail on this uh, topic, Jason. I hope you understand why our focus at the moment is very much on uh, ensuring that we complete the pieces of the puzzle that we have put on the table at the moment for the uh, for the taxonomy, in particular the Complementary Data Delegated Act on, on Gas and Nuclear. And that's the immediate agenda. So I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Understand. So SFDR level two is set to go live January 2023 after some delays. Yet there still remain some fundamental questions around some FDR issues, like what exactly constitutes a sustainable investment? How should investors assess it, i.e. at the entity or economic activity level, not to mention some pretty meaningful gaps in the data still? How do you see us kind of converging around answers to these big questions over the next nine months? Well, the first step, as I, as I mentioned earlier, which I hope will, will happen very soon, is that we, we should uh, adopt and publish the RTS under SFDR, which will provide a clear disclosure framework and at least will, will provide much more detailed information in order to assess how products perform from a, from a sustainability point of view. That's not the end of the story. Again, something else I mentioned before, I'm, I think there's going to be a need for great deal of work at the level of, by the supervisory community to ensure that these uh, these requirements are properly enforced, that there is a common approach across Europe, what we call supervisory convergence across Europe. We may, at some point, need to provide further clarity in the legal framework, whether it's the definition of some of these terms that, that, that you mentioned, you know, sustainable investment, sustainability characteristics, and so on. That all remains to be seen. We hope very much that the different pieces of the sustainable finance puzzle complement and support each other. In particular, I can give the example of the CSRD and the SFDR. It is perhaps can be argued to be slightly odd that we, we started with SFDR at the level of the asset managers and only later on came up with a CSRD proposal, although there are reasons for that and there are actually some arguments to support that approach. But with the CSRD negotiations proceeding, from what I understand, quite well, and I hopeful that there can be an agreement on that, and then the standards kicking in, there will be a much better basis for providing data to financial market participants subject to the SFDR. 
So that's one example of how the different pieces of the, of the sustainability puzzle can, can complement and support each other. I do, however, want to uh, make clear that there's no strict legal dependency for the implementation of the SFDR and the uh, availability of data under CSRD. Because if there were, that would lead us to the conclusion that financial market participants subject to the SFDR can only invest in securities or companies that are covered by the CSRD, which would then exclude any third country company, which clearly would not be a sensible conclusion to reach. So there's no strict legal dependency, but but again, we, we very much hope that all of the pieces of the puzzle will, will support each other. And again, I'm sure that in the fullness of time, when we have enough experience and enough information about uh, how, how all these uh, pieces uh, are working in practice, that we may have to come back to, to evaluating and it's a normal part of a process uh, evaluating the, the implementation of the legislation and and at some point maybe fine-tuning the legislation. That's that's certainly not something that's excluded. But before we, we, we think about amending legislation, we, we need to now see how, how it pans out. We've done a lot of legislation recently and uh, we have to be careful not to overload it. There may be areas where we need to provide further tools to the industry there may be areas where we may need to take further action if we notice that there is a real risk and reality of greenwashing. There may be areas where we need to act if uh, we see that, uh, for example, retail investors don't have access to kind of simple and understandable information that they need to have. So none of that is excluded, but let's see how these things pan out. As level two is set to be implemented in January of 2023, and again, there have been, I think, two delays to it. What's your message to investors in terms of navigating these short-term timing misalignments? Uh, the one I'm specifically speaking to is this sort of six-month misalignment around MIFID 2. I think there's a lot of consternation about when level two comes in and sort of expectations around sustainability preferences among clients. What message would you send against the overall long-term objectives that the commission is trying to lay out? Yeah. Again, we're all conscious of the fact that there are lots of moving parts in this sustainable finance agenda, and sometimes there can be slight frictions. The specific example you refer to, I think actually the misalignment is, 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 is less than six months, more like five months or something like that. But what we see is that there are companies out there that have taken the effort to get ready. And I would be very concerned if we were to take any action that is in any way seen as penalizing those first movers and perhaps even rewarding laggards. So we have to be careful with that. There are requests to delay various pieces of the sustainable finance framework. And I don't think that does a lot for um, the reputation or credibility of, of the overall framework. So I, I, I'm very reluctant to go in that direction personally. And as I said, we are in a situation where we have to act very quickly in this area because the planet and the climate demands that we act uh, very quickly. So these slight inconsistencies, but friction certainly can exist uh, and uh, well, that's just that's just life, I think. Yeah. So I wouldn't dramatize them either. And as I said, the information I have is that there are companies that have taken the trouble to, to make sure they are ready, that they are already providing the information necessary about their products. Again, with the publication of the RTS, which we hope to do very quickly, we think that that should provide a clear framework and a very clear signal to the market about the direction in which to go. So I think there is a way out of this. 
I want to change lanes on this last question a little bit. I mean, so climate change has largely dominated the ESG agenda for the last several years for a lot of good reasons, but we're starting to see more attention around the S or social dimension. Indeed, the European Commission recently issued its proposal for a directive on corporate sustainability due diligence to tackle human rights and environmental impacts across global value chains. Long title there. It's been described by some as a watershed moment for human rights and the environment. It's fantastic to see, but I'm wondering from your view, what are the implications for the asset management industry, given this is obviously more corporate oriented? How do you see this complementing or fitting into the SFDR? I would imagine the principal adverse impacts would, would be one of the kind of linkages. Yeah, it's certainly true that climate has uh, been sort of in the political spotlight, and we saw that with COP25 and COP26 in, in Paris and, and, and Glasgow. But I would slightly question the initial premise of, of your question in the sense that, as I mentioned earlier, in our legal framework, we have in most cases adopted an approach which covers the full ESG spectrum. That's certainly the case for the CSRD proposal. It's also the case for the SFDR even in, in the taxonomy, we started with climate, but the taxonomy uh, regulation already includes the other uh, environmental objectives and, uh, and work on that is proceeding. So in the EU, from the get-go, we've taken a slightly broader approach. Now, the um, due diligence proposal, if I can call it, uh, slightly shortened the text, uh, the title that you referred to, Jason, <laughs> is, I think, an important part of the puzzle that will further support the implementation of this uh, EU Sustainable Finance Agenda. From the asset management perspective, I guess what's really interesting is what information do asset managers and others get from the investee companies. And that will happen, is happening today to a certain extent already under the Non-Financial Reporting Directive and in the future through the CSRD in a much more detailed, comparable, granular, reliable way. And if I remember correctly, the scope of the due diligence proposal is such that the companies that are covered by, by that proposal would also have to report under the, the CSRD. So that, that information should be there. Now, this uh, due diligence proposal provides a much more granular framework for due diligence requirements. And I think that can only support the quality of the information that uh, asset managers will receive about their investee companies in the future. So... Again, I see this as another complementary element in our sustainable finance agenda. Let's see how long the negotiations about this uh, text uh, take. But I think it's certainly a very good thing that this proposal has, uh, which has been a long time in the making, has now hit the road and uh, that the negotiations can start in the Council and the Parliament. Great. Really looking forward to it. So it's been fascinating to discuss how you see the EU sustainable finance disclosure regulation evolving over time, particularly around harmonization. What can be done to address greenwashing and enforcement and why it's critical to understand as a whole the EU's ambitions and legislative ability in architecting the sustainable finance strategy. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and insights. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with Ellen Deckers, head of asset management within the European Commission's DG FISMA unit. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thank you so much, Alain. Thank you very much, Jason. It's been a great conversation. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash 
ri-podcast. Or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com.